0: Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.
1: An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.
0: Today's business travelers are finding that fitting in a little leisure time keeps them recharged and excited on work trips. I know this because whenever I travel for work, I always try and meet up with a friend to catch up, have a great dinner, or hit a museum wherever I am. So if you're traveling for work... Go with the card that puts the travel in business travel. The Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card. If you travel, you know. TurboTax makes all your moves count. Filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at turbotex.com slash guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Hey, before we start the show, I just want to remind you that tickets for the How I Built This Summit are selling fast. We now have fewer than 50 tickets left, so don't miss your chance to learn from some of the world's most inspiring entrepreneurs and also to meet hundreds of other innovators and builders. The Summit is on October 16th in San Francisco, and it's supported by American Express. Go to npr.org summit to find out more and to get your tickets, and I hope to see you there.
2: We were sure that this was going to be something that was big. But um, we went back to our investors, so including Andreessen Horowitz. And we went in there and told them our plan. And, you know, we could one day get to $100 million in revenue with this business and thereby be a billion dollar business. And like they were just like, you guys have no idea what you're doing. You don't understand what it is to sell into companies. Um, you're going to need all of this expertise. And they were they were like, good luck with your stupid little thing."
0: From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how Stuart Butterfield perfected the art of the pivot by turning a failed online game company into Slack, a messaging program now valued at over $5 billion. So you might remember a story we did a while back about Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger. When they joined forces to build a tech company, they came up with something they called bourbon. It was a check-in app that was going to take the world by storm. You'd take out your smartphone and declare, hey, I'm on bourbon and at Starbucks. Anyone there? Well, the problem is there was no one. No one used bourbon. At least, not in the way it was intended. But what Mike and Kevin discovered was their small user base really loved the photo-sharing feature. That was special. Bourbon was a failure, but that cool photo-sharing feature? Well, they decided to make that their business. And that business is better known today as Instagram. So now... Imagine you're working to build a massive multiplayer online game. A weird, utopian fantasy world like Burning Man, but in cyberspace. Well, that was Stuart Butterfield's big idea. This was going to be his life's pursuit, his great achievement. So he tried it. Not once, but twice. And both times... He failed. But something else happened both times. Two entirely different, entirely unintended products were born from those failures. The first one was called Flickr. It was an early image hosting website where you could store and share photos. The second one? Well, if you work in an office, I'm pretty sure you've heard of it or use it. It's called Slack. And if you don't know what it is, it's a messaging app designed for team collaboration. Slack is one of the fastest-growing business apps ever, and it was kind of an accident. But we'll get to that story. What you need to know about Stuart Butterfield is that he had kind of an unconventional childhood, like off-the-grid, back-to-the-land unconventional, because his parents were counterculture hippies who decided to live in the remote backwoods of British Columbia in Canada.
2: Yeah, they had restored an old log cabin that was built um, around the turn of the last century, didn't have running water until I was um, three. Didn't have electricity till I was four. There's actually a funny story of my mother's father, who came from Poland to Montreal in between World War I and World War II, coming to visit them. And they had a bathtub in the front yard and, you know, just like trying to eat the food that they were growing and didn't have many possessions. And he was like, I can't believe I escaped the shtetl in Poland and sent all of you to university. And then now you're back living in this dump. Oh, my God. So they were like real live-off-the-land hippies. Wow. Uh, My name was uh, Dharma when I was born.
0: Your birth name was Dharma.
2: Yeah, the Hindu and then later Buddhist concept of like the path, the way. Wow. And when I was 12 years old, like most 12-year-olds really wanted to be normal. So... I changed it to Stuart because for some reason I had the impression that Stuart was the most normal name you could have. (laughs) You didn't want to be Dharma? (laughs) No. I I regret it now because Dharma Butterfield is an amazing amazing name. Totally amazing.
0: Stuart eventually went to study philosophy in college. But while he was in school, he also got really interested in computers. And on the side, he taught himself to code in HTML. And so during the summers, he started to make websites for local businesses. But his master plan, his main goal was actually to become a philosophy professor until he realized that working in tech might be a more stable job. So he moved to Vancouver and he got a job at a tech startup called
2: Communicate.com. The guy who founded it had bought in nineteen ninety-three all of these domains, like Vietnam.com and Brazil.com and makeup.com and perfume.com. Who, who who was this guy? His name was Brian Liu. He's unfortunately passed away since then. But um so this is like ninety-eight 99
0: owned, owned Brazil.com and Vietnam.com. Wow.
2: Yeah, but but also like dance.com and electronic.com. Like he had hundreds of them, really, really valuable. Wow. So that was the guy
0: who was buying them all up.
2: And bought them up. I didn't even know you could buy .com yeah. domains in, in 93. Like that was really, really early. So he's sitting on this, what at that time was like a, a gold mine. And the way that we thought back then was we would um, develop one universal e-commerce back end and then have all these domain names be the front end.
0: And they, and, and it was the idea was that they were going to have a bunch of websites and they would all basically direct users to this one e-commerce site where you could get anything, makeup or whatever it was.
2: Or tickets to Brazil or um, boxing paraphernalia or whatever they had. Hmm. But, um no one had anything really to do. Like, no one knew exactly what we were doing. Um, it was really early. It seemed like this was incredibly valuable. We're going to have a contest giveaway at BMW Z3, which was in, like in that James Bond movie. So it was like the hot car at that time. Um, so that we got people to sign up. What are they signing up for? I don't know. <laughs> it got worse and worse and worse, like day by day because no one knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing and the management meetings turned into screaming matches. And so uh, around the end of February of the year 2000, I quit. I walked away. I thought I was walking away from like $10 million in equity and I got bought out for for $35,000 on my way out. And of course, like 10 days later, two weeks later, was the first dot-com crash. And so in the end, I got $35,000 more than I would have had I stayed. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So so what did you decide to do next?
2: Um well I convinced one of the guys who happened to sit next to me, uh, Jason Classen, who was running a website on the side called Gradfinder, which was a competitor to classmates. So this is you know, many years before Facebook existed. Yeah. Then I convinced him to, to leave when I had my thirty five thousand dollars and we went out and raised a whole fifty thousand dollars of money from other people and started it up as a real business.
0: This is Gradfinder.com. Yeah, And this is a way to find other people who graduated from your college, basically?
2: Yeah, so it's a, like a giant directory of high schools. Right, and right. in each high school, you could have a, a graduation year, and people would just sign up and message each other and, and stuff like that. We worked on it for like six or eight months, and it got acquired uh, by— wow. Yeah, so we were lucky. Amazing. By one of like these dot-coms that had raised a ton of money, like, I don't know, $150 million. I don't even remember what it was called now. In, this is like the last gasps. This is the end of the year uh two thousand, and they ended up going bankrupt a year later.
0: So when you guys sold Gradfinder when it was acquired, did you walk away with a bunch of cash yourself?
2: yeah, I mean a bunch of cash you know more tens of thousands. I don't even remember exactly what it was, but it wasn't like you know millions of dollars it but it was, was it was uh, probably yeah. a,
0: a decent amount of cash for you know a guy in his mid twenties
2: yeah, no, definitely, yeah. You know, I took a lot of the next year off. I did consulting work, but relatively little.
0: Um, I guess it was around this time, like 2000, where you met someone
2: and you got married. I did, yeah. Um, In like 99, I started a a weblog. And there was a couple hundred people or so around the world who had blogs, and we all knew each other. And um, one of the bloggers whose blogs I admired was a woman named Katarina Fake. She had a a website called Katarina.net, and it still exists now 20-plus years later. So, yeah, around that time um, we met, and a year-ish later um, we got married. And it was an interesting time because all of – The dot-com era hype had completely dissipated. A lot of companies had imploded. But there's a lot of creativity. So in in late 99, I started this competition called the 5K, which was to build the smallest – any website or web page that could be done in five kilobytes of data. And one of the people who entered the competition was a guy named Eric Costello who lived in – at the time in St. Louis. Hmm. And I sparked up a friendship with him and by this time Jason had come back from the Gradfinder acquisition and we all started working together on a project called Game Never Ending which was an attempt to build a web-based massively multiplayer game
0: and it was a never ending game presumably yep <laughs> You yep. Ne- never ended okay this was you and Katerina, your now wife and Jason Clausen, who you did Gradfinder with yep and with this guy Eric Costello you decide that you want to create a game. A massive multiplayer online game.
2: Yeah, so there's a, there's a whole type of gaming that existed before you know, graphical games took off, and they were the precursor for everything that came after. World of Warcraft being the example that most people would know. Yeah. But we weren't interested in fighting games. We were interested in creativity and play as kind of a pretext for social interaction. Hmm. So this idea still has a lot of appeal to me. It's a horrible idea <laughs> commercially. <laughs> like, it's just there's not enough people who are interested in it but you know there was a, a group who who used the prototype and were very enthusiastic and the seeds of this incredible community and we thought hey you know we built this prototype people liked it we can make this into a real project
0: and what what were the game look like would you be in front of a screen looking at like a minecraft type interface or yeah or so it? it was
2: it was 2002 2003 so the graphics weren't right, even yeah. Ma- minecraft quality um it was more like there was a map you could there's like different objects and you could click on them to pick them up or click on them to do stuff with them they're really rudimentary so we tried everything to raise some money for this and uh, there was zero interest in investing in this because now it's it's like the middle of uh, 2002. Yeah. And um, no one wanted to invest in anything that had anything to do with the internet.
0: Yeah. Well, how are you even going to make money off this? What was the business model?
2: People would pay a monthly subscription. I see. Um, so – I put my money into it. Um, some of us working on it put our money into it. We hired a couple of people. We raised a couple hundred thousand dollars of friends and family money. And when I say friends and family, I mean like literally friends and family. And by the middle of 2003, you know, we now been working on it in a year. It was clear how complex this was going to be. And, uh, we just realized we're never going to be able to finish it like, yeah. for the amount of money we raised. And we were desperate for something else that um, – that we could complete in a shorter amount of time. And that thing ended up being Flickr. And I think when we started it, the intention was we'll build this and someone will buy it for like a million dollars and then we can use that million dollars to finish the game. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that's not what happened at all.
0: Wait, wait, let me let me go back for a sec. So you've got this idea uh, to build this game, very expensive. Uh, you, just, you just don't have enough money to do it, right? So then you decide. I mean, it leads you to starting up Flickr which is like a photo-sharing website. How did that even happen?
2: Well, we had, uh, at that time, developed a whole bunch of really interesting and relatively novel technologies. So we had a game that you could play in a web browser. Hmm. And despite the fact that it was pretty rudimentary graphics, it was still, from a technological perspective, totally fascinating and new. Yeah. And this story sounds like too good to be true and kind of ridiculous, but... A group of lawyers had organized a conference called Law and Virtual Worlds in New York, and they invited all these people, and, and I went with Katerina. And on the plane on the way there, I got food poisoning. So when we got to JFK, I was just throwing up. i getting get in the, the taxi, pull over on the Van Wick to throw up, and then get to the hotel and like, open the cab door and throw up all over the carpet. It was like, really sick. I couldn't keep anything down, kind of like fever dreams. And the part that sounds apocryphal, but it's, I swear it's true, is the whole idea for Flickr came to me that night. I literally wrote it out on like scraps of paper in the hotel room while I couldn't sleep at five in the morning. You wrote
0: out, you wrote out what?
2: Um, a way to take the interface that we had developed for the game, which let people chat, which let right. people change locations, which let people manipulate these objects, like to pull them into their inventory and do yeah. stuff with them. And instead of the objects, we'll just have photos. So you can upload a photo and then you could do stuff with it. So when I say do stuff, I mean people could draw a little rectangle on the photo and then make an annotation of that part of the photo. They could chat about them. They could send them to other people. They could change the title. And everything happened dynamically. So, like, when I did something, you would see what was happening on your computer. So, again, technologically, for the time, amazing. Like, just mind-blowing. People were incredibly effusive. then um, let me just pause for a second to say... This was the first version of Flickr, which was not, which was not good, <laughs> and which we quickly changed, and the reason we were successful is because we changed it. and this is, I think a good point to introduce another character. i've got We've got so many threads going here, but uh, so one of the players of the game was uh, like early twenties hardcore just nerd um, who lived in a tiny village in England and had a job in London. He commuted to London every day on the train for a couple of hours, and he had developed a bunch of stuff. To illustrate the social networks inside the game, kind of, we didn't have any APIs for him to use, but it turned out had hacked into our internal mailing list when we were working on the game and had been reading all of our messages, which okay. is why he was able to develop all this stuff.
0: Wait, well, he was a, like a just a person who played game never ending.
2: Yeah, like a fan, and um, his name was Cal Henderson. Cal was such a geek, like one of the nerdiest people I'd ever met in my life. He was also a, like a prodigy programmer. And so when I convinced him to start um, to work with us on on making Flickr, he was really into it. And on the train to London every day, two hours in, two hours out, he wrote almost all of the guts of Flickr, Um, the way to upload the photos and to process them, to store them, display them, the original... Payment he got was me buying stuff off his Amazon wish list. So it was like Radiohead EPs and yeah. like, you know, rare vinyl and stuff like that. So here's what I don't get.
0: Everyone's like focused on this game, but everyone kind of knows that it's the money's running out. How did you then convince everybody to pivot? Did you say, hey, guys, you know what? Let's just dump this gaming thing. Let's go all in on a photo sharing site. Like, did anybody say, what are you talking about?
2: Oh, yeah. So I actually forgot about this until a couple of years ago when, when I was reminded of it. I kind of laid out everything and said, this is the situation. We're just not going to be able to finish the game. And I let everyone vote.
0: You said to them you let them vote on whether to actually go through with this plan?
2: Yeah, whether to to um, switch our efforts to to flicker and to really pursue that instead of the game, and then I lost.
0: <laughs> well, what was um, the argument you made? How did I mean? Why did you even think that was a good idea?
2: Because it was something that we could complete faster. You know, like mm-hmm. we could actually get it out. Um, right. We would, and we were, at this point, Eric was the one person on the team who had kids, so he was the one person who got paid. Like we just weren't able to pay anyone anymore. Yeah. So we had this vote, I lost, um, or, or Flickr lost in game one, so that I had to call Eric on the side and like, you know, do some, what I imagine happens in the Senate, some kind of like horse trading to convince him to change his vote. And that worked. And, um, you know, we, that decision was December 2003. And in February 2004, we launched Flickr. We all flew to San Diego for this conference. Um, and, and
0: were people, like, super excited about it when you launched?
2: It was, a, it was a pretty big deal when it launched. I mean, in that closed community, you know, yeah. there, there wasn't nearly as many people online. You know, this is, like, probably a decade before the majority of people got smartphones. Mm. The internet wasn't—was still perceived as this kind of, like, weird, creepy place. Like, if you saw a, a popular image of an internet user, it would be, like, a really overweight guy in the yeah. basement. Yeah, like, like
0: that guy in The Simpsons.
2: yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: you guys. Uh, so it's like 2004. You put Flickr out there, and and people who were on the internet were like, "Cool, a place to to put our photos up online."
2: Yeah. Um, so around that time, Google had bought Blogger, um, which was one of the early blogging programs, and uh, they didn't have a way to host photos. So they put you know in their help materials online. When people said, how do I upload photos? They said, use Flickr. Hmm. You know, it was like the one standout of that time where the, the world had kind of soured on the internet that kind of rose from the the ashes of all that destruction and became like a, a cool, interesting thing that people could get involved in that was fun about the internet again.
0: And and how how is Flickr going to make money? Because if all these people are coming onto it, presumably you had to buy like server space, which was a lot more expensive then before like cloud computing. Um, yeah. how, how, how did you deal with that?
2: Um, we sold what we called pro accounts, which let you, um, I believe it was you could see the whole history of your photos. Whereas if you didn't buy a Pro account, you could only see 200. And and, um, that actually went pretty well. But you're right. Hardware at that time was just, you know, astronomically expensive and
0: memory storage. You were storing all these people's photos.
2: Absolutely. So every week we would put in order to to Dell. You know, UPS would deliver boxes from <laughs> Dell, and then every Friday night, Jason and I would go down to the where the servers were and the screwdrivers and put servers onto the racks and to wow. set everything up. And but um, because Flickr was you know really taking off in, in the public imagination, we actually got some people who are interested in investing. So mm-hmm. so we we actually raised a little bit of money, so we were able to buy the servers, and we were growing really quickly, and we actually had people buying pro accounts. You know, not very many, but we also didn't pay ourselves very much, um, so we were covering a bit of the cost through actual usage, and suddenly companies uh, wanted to buy us.
0: Like uh, like which companies?
2: Um, we were talking to Google, um, to Yahoo, to um, I don't know if people remember this anymore, but to Ask Jeeves. Oh, yes, of course. Um, <laughs> and to some of the other existing photo sharing sites. Um, you know, Fast forward another six months or so. Now it's Christmas of 2004. So it's about to turn into 2005. And we also had a bunch of venture capitalists who were interested. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Yahoo is getting really, really serious. So the search part of Yahoo made an offer to buy us. And then over that Christmas, New Year's period, 2004, 2005, we had to choose, do we want to take this money from the investors and build this into something bigger? Or do we want to take the money now from Yahoo? Um, And, you know, we got a great pitch from them. um, And the promise was, you know, come work at Yahoo, we'll buy the company, we'll give you this money, but we'll also give you all of these resources. And we have all of Yahoo's hundreds of millions of users and all of our technology and all of our servers, and you can build this into this great and wonderful thing. So, um, that's in the end what we decided to do. What did what they offer? It was around twenty million bucks. So twenty million bucks. Wow, you were a, you were a rich guy overnight. Yeah. So suddenly, all the friends and family who invested in the dumb game a couple years prior um, were in a good position, and, and everyone who worked there who had deferred their salaries and kind of sacrificed along the way mm. um, was in a good position. And the feedback that we got from our investors was, hey, look, you know, this is going to be a life-changing amount of money. You'll be able to do what you want to do after. And who knows if this opportunity will stay around. So you should just take the acquisition. So smart move. Smart move, for sure. I mean, like 100% of the time, they would give the opposite advice today. Yeah, right. But it, it was really yeah, – Flickr was like a really singular thing um, in the internet at that time.
0: I mean, you, you guys, you and Karina were like kind of internet and more than internet famous. You were famous like after that acquisition. You, you, you landed on the cover of Newsweek.
2: Yeah, so I would say still a little bit internet famous because uh, I was in New York and I was flying back to the West Coast when that Newsweek um, issue came out.
0: What did, what what did the cover say, by the way?
2: Well, I'll tell you. Um, I grabbed a stack of them at the newsstand inside of JFK and I slapped uh-huh. them down. It's like, you know, I have like a dozen copies or something like that. <laughs> and the woman um, who was checking me out, didn't, she didn't look up and she scanned one magazine and she flipped it over and scanned the other one. And she said, honey, you know, all these are the same. And I said, yep. <laughs> and then she looked up at me and then she looked down at the magazine. She looked up at me again and she was like, really, like her eyes lit up. She was so excited. And then she read the cover of it and said something like, Web 2.0 from Flickr to MySpace, something, something. And she was just crestfallen. She was just like, oh, my God. I thought you were going to be someone important. Like, you were going to be a movie star or, like, American Idol contestant or something, like, I cared about. you just
0: like some Web 2.0 dude. <laughs> like
2: the, the look on her face was just amazing. And then she just scanned the rest of the magazines and checked me out, and that was it. So, so Yahoo gets a pretty
0: good deal now that we, we know now in hindsight on this this product. You walk away with um, probably a good amount of cash. Probably not set for life, though, right?
2: No, not set for life, and and part of that acquisition, um, what's called earnout. So, it's conditional on the employees staying with mm. Yahoo for a time.
0: How long did you have to stay with Yahoo to fully vest, get all your 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 money?
2: Uh, three years.
0: And you lasted how long?
2: Three and a half.
0: <laughs> so you like you basically you made it. So how were those 3 years at Yahoo?
2: I think um I was never in the army, but I looked back at that time the way I would imagine some people look back at boot camp, which was it was horrible <laughs> at the time, but like very rewarding and enriching and I and I learned a yeah. lot and developed character and stuff like that. <laughs> what was horrible about it? <laughs> well, we, at the time we required it was 9 people. So um Nine people being acquired by what at the time I think was like an eleven or 12,000-person company. Huh. And suddenly everything that was just easy, like we would just decide something and then it would be decided, became this massive process. Um, now when we wanted to get more servers, we had to go to the hardware review committee and you had to make an appointment. And you couldn't get an appointment for like five weeks. Meanwhile, the site's going to fall over. Wow. And when we wanted to blog something, you know, like make an announcement publicly or add a feature, we would just do it before we were acquired and then after we were acquired there was like you know whole Approval. comms team and, right yeah um, it just took a lot of getting used to so it's just like you know almost all of my energy went into things other than making Flickr a, a great product
0: it sounds like you were just just, just, t- just counting down the days you wanted to, you really want to get out
2: yeah I said that I mean there's also there was good parts as well and I, I gotta say you know I use the bootcamp analogy in a deliberate way I learned and amazing amount some of it was negative lessons like you know don't do this but a lot of it was positive lessons and it also was just really eye-opening you know it's like i certainly i learned a lot more than i ever would have learned in any mba program yeah just being exposed to um because Flickr was pretty high profile i had access to all of the executives and i could see all these decisions that i was involved in all these things that i never would have been involved in otherwise
0: so when you left um, Yahoo, was it was it with a feeling of joy and possibility, or was it a feeling of like, okay, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do now?
2: Um, I'd, I'd say halfway in between. There was it wasn't overwhelmingly positive or negative.
0: Because you, I guess, and this is a kind of a personal thing, but you your marriage was breaking up at that time.
2: Yep, it was. Um, we had only recently had a kid and. We didn't work together that closely at Yahoo, but it, it's um, pretty challenging to to work with your spouse, especially in the yeah. early days of a startup. Sure. So this is going back many years now, when we first started working in Flickr, like out of money, and it's not just the business is out of money; it's like we're out of money. You're out of well. money, um, yeah. and that that stress isn't like okay, I can leave it at the office and go home to my family, which is totally mm. independent. It's you know they're really um, interwoven. So I think that was, you know, it was just it was a difficult time and. Um, by the time that um, we left Yahoo, like a, pretty soon after that, it was just over.
0: And I guess you you still had to work. You still had to figure something out. So, what did you do when, when you walked out of out of Yahoo? What was your plan?
2: Um, there wasn't a, an immediate short term plan. It was definitely to take some time off because that had been a real whirlwind. But it didn't take long for a lot of the same people who worked on Flickr and had worked on the previous game to decide that we wanted to work on the game again.
0: so You want to go back to
2: gaming. Yeah.
0: You didn't learn your lesson the first time around.
2: Yeah, we apparently didn't. I mean, so the world looked pretty different at that point. So now it's the beginning of 2009. There was at least an order of magnitude more people online, whereas in 2002, the majority of people didn't have Internet access at home. Now the majority did. Computers are way faster. All the hardware was way cheaper. Mm. Online games... Um, were something that were, we were really popular, and so we figured like, oh, this time we can't fail. Like there's, yeah. you know, all of the conditions are perfect, so um, we should do this. When you say
0: when you say we, you're talking about the people who worked on the previous game with you, all those guys.
2: Yeah. So there was me and three of the engineers, um, including Cal Henderson and Eric Costello, and another one um, named Sergey Morochov, who's in Vancouver. And what we decided to do, which was called Glitch, was completely different than anything that anyone had ever seen
0: before. The game was called Glitch?
2: Yes. So in this game, it was a bizarre, fantastical world, really tried to encourage individual creativity and people could create stuff inside the world. But in the world, you would like milk butterflies in in order to get butterfly milk and you could like eggs grew on trees and the look was kind of like... Dr. Seuss meets Monty Python meets, like, modern-day graphic novels. So as you moved around the world, the look changed dramatically.
0: So you had a track record with Flickr. Like, you already had a reputation. You'd been on the cover of Newsweek. You'd worked for Yahoo. So when it came time to raise money, was it pretty easy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It was very easy for us to raise money. Um, So we started off with, like, a million and a half dollars. We were able to hire someone. We were able to afford all the technology we wanted. And as we started developing the game, we had a bunch of really positive early indications. So we charged people money, and they were they paid a lot. You know, like the average person who paid was paying $70 uh, a year.
0: And this is like, what, 2010, 2011, something like that?
2: Yeah. And people were
0: already paying for it. It was that good.
2: Well, it was that good for a very small population. <laughs> so, in fact, it was really hard for us to get people even to go through the first few minutes of the game because huh. it was just so different and so weird. Most people who tried it were like, what the hell is this? And just pieced out in the first three minutes of gameplay.
0: All right. So you guys um, launched this thing. There's some early success. You raised lots of cash. And then November of 2012, you shut it down. What, what happens?
2: Well, um, being in business and, and I think especially being a CEO requires a lot of unnatural optimism and at some point (laughs) it's just that optimism is exhausted so we had what's called a leaky bucket so people would come in the the top of the funnel um, and the funnel is kind of describing like first people hear about your thing then they go to the website then they sign up Then they, in our case, play the game a little bit. Then they end up paying you. And each of those stages, you kind of some people fall out of the process. So that's why it's called the the funnel, the leaky bucket. Is you get people in the top, but they just fall out. Like they fall out the process too early. Not enough of them make it all the way through. They didn't stick with it. Yeah, they didn't stick with it. And it was always the next thing that was going to fix it. Like Mm. the next game dynamic we added, the next bit of customization, the next, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. But as we continued to try those things, we just never found that magic formula um, that would make it work economically. Like Hmm. it would have been a a fine what people call lifestyle business, but um, it was never going to become the kind of business that would justify $17.5 million of venture capital investment.
0: So at what point did you come to, to the decision to shut it down?
2: Well, so I was, I was losing a lot of sleep in those days and I was, I was up really late one night and I was like two or three in the morning. I I was in bed and I hadn't been sleeping for hours and I just realized like, I don't believe this can work, (laughs) Like I don't believe it anymore. And I realized right in that moment, like there's a saying, if you're thinking about firing someone a lot, you should just fire them. Meaning that like that intuition, if that keeps coming up, it's almost certainly correct. And you wouldn't be thinking that all the time if there was a real shot at making the relationship work. Um, I think it's exactly the same thing with the business. Once I began not to have little doubts, um, but once at a fundamental level, I was just like, I don't think this is going to work. It's not going to work. So, you know, first thing that morning, I wrote to all the co-founders um, and then to our board of directors and just said, it's over. And... That definitely was not a unanimous point of view, and there's a lot of kind of contention and yeah, argument. And, um, I bet because we had developed an enormous amount of kind of equity, like a, a really content. You had content, tons of content. Yeah, millions of frames of animation, hundreds of hours of original music. So, how did you break the news to the team? I mean, they must have been
0: it must have been excruciating.
2: Yeah, it was it was um, a horrible experience, and I I say we're going to have an all hands meeting. And everyone, you know, files in and gets together. People have their coffee in the morning and they're chit-chatting. And, and finally, like, I stand up and the meeting starts and I start to tell them that we're going to shut down the game. And before I could even get the like the first half of the sentence out, I was crying. Mm. And, you know, almost everyone in the room, I had personally convinced that they should come work at this company, that they should accept our stock options, that they should believe in the project, that they should believe in me. And so it's... Um, and it's like it's humiliating. there's a real sense that I had failed all these people. Yeah. Um, that, that I had an obligation to them, and I was I, I had locked eyes with this one software engineer, who had just three months before moved. He had a, an infant daughter. Like, I don't know, like maybe six months or a year old. He was moving away from his in-laws who were helping take care of the kid, moving to a new city with his whole family. Mm. And now I was telling him he didn't have a job anymore.
0: when we come back how stewart's second failure to build an online game had a silver lining and how the idea for slack was hiding in plain sight stay with us i'm guy raz and you're listening to how i built this from npr As a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long, and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. Isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers. LinkedIn Ads allow you to build the right relationships, drive results, and reach your customers in a respectful environment. You'll be able to drive results with targeting and measurement tools built specifically for B2B. In technology, LinkedIn generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. I've talked to hundreds of founders and business leaders every day on this show, and I've learned that LinkedIn has been vital to the growth of their companies. It helps them build relationships with customers and get direct access to thousands of decision makers. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com builtthis built this to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com builtthis built this. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by PipeDrive, the easy and effective CRM for closing more deals and driving small business growth. New year, new targets. PipeDrive allows you to automate your sales process so you can focus on your other business priorities in 2024. With PipeDrive, you can stay on top of your sales activities so you never miss a follow-up. So sign up today. And get a special 60 day free trial now at pipedrive.com with the code BUILT. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, so if you're a business owner or hiring manager struggling to attract and retain top talent, it's no secret that finding the right employees and keeping them engaged can be an uphill battle. Fortunately, there's Insperity, a leading HR provider. They'll help you improve hiring and compensation practices, and your people will get the training tools they need to thrive. Download their free ebook at Insperity.com for tips to build your dream team. Don't let a lack of talent hinder your goals. Spend less time worrying about recruitment and retention and more time growing your business. See how Insperity provides HR that makes a difference at Insperity.com. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This from NPR. So in November of 2012, Stuart Butterfield decided to shut down development of his multiplayer online game called Glitch, and he laid off almost all of the employees. Now, at the time, he really didn't know what his next move was going to be, but he decided to do something kind of unusual, which is to help out the people he just fired.
2: This is where um, I feel glad that we made the decision when we did because we still we had raised all this money we still had like over five million dollars in the bank um it was late in the year you know we're going to give keep paying everyone for several months so they had a chance to find another job we built a website called hire a genius and we had everyone's like you know a portfolio their name and endorsements we wrote reference letters we helped people with their resumes we made introductions um By the end of that process, we had gotten, you know, every single person who worked there who was getting laid off, and there was uh, like 37 of them, I believe, Uh, every single one of them got another job. And in most cases, they got a better job than the one that they had. And I think that making sure everyone got hired generated an enormous amount of goodwill, like in the community at large. And um, I think that was very helpful for us down the road um, Mm -hmm. when we started Slack, and people were more willing to give us a chance.
0: Okay, so you were left at the helm of this now rump of a company or non-company, and what, what, what was your next move?
2: Well, so the interesting thing about Glitch was while it wasn't successful as a business, We were extraordinarily productive, and there was a system for internal communication that we had developed that we didn't think about as a thing. Like, it didn't have a name. We never talked about it. It was just how we happened to communicate, and it was all built around the concept of a channel, and you can have a channel that created for anything, for a project, for a a functional group, for um, a topic of conversation, and the channel exists whether you're a member or not. And it can continue to exist after you leave. And it's kind of an inversion of the typical inter-office communication, which is entirely based on email now. In email, if you join a company um, that has been around for 30 years and has been using email since its inception, you get an empty inbox. You're completely cut off from the whole history of what's happened before you got there. Right, um, And almost all of the email, like 99.99% of it, is going into individuals' inboxes and is not visible to anyone else. And you can be CC'd into something that was already going on, or someone can forward you a conversation, but it's not accessible. You know, someone else has to give it to you. Whereas while we were working on the game, Glitch, we would hire someone new in customer support, and they would have the whole history of all of the conversations the customer support team had had before they got there. Mm. They would have the whole history of um, the topics that the designers were working on. Everything else that was going on was visible to them.
0: But my assumption is that, like, you weren't sitting around going, "Oh my god, this internal chat system that we have created is is revolutionary!" Like, you were focused on glitch, and this thing was kind of cool, and it just made things kind of it greased the skids. But or, or am I wrong? Were you did you actually wake up in the morning, like every day, and say, "Oh my god, this thing is amazing"?
2: No, you were right in, in the first place. We we didn't even think about it. Like, I, I yeah. think if someone asked me, "What do you do for internal communication?" I would shrug my shoulders and say, "I don't know," like whatever do this, yeah. everyone does. Yeah, we didn't think about it at all, and it was only. Once we had decided to shut down the game, um, that we realized, like, hey, this system is actually pretty good. We would never work without a system like this again. Like, it's it's so much better than anything else we had used before. Maybe other people would like it.
0: So at what point do you decide, let's see if we can take this, like, chat thing that we built and turn that into a business?
2: It's it's funny. um, We have these conversations, and we had them in our internal communication tool, the thing that predated Slack. Um, and so there's timestamps. My memory is very different than the reality. My memory is is it took us months to decide this, and there's a lot of debate. In fact, it took us like less than a week. The core was there like almost instantly. And so
0: who's left? who was who, left? How many people stayed to, to see if you could make this new thing work?
2: So it was um, myself and the other three co-founders, so there's four of us. And then there's four employees that we kept, um, one of whom we had worked with back in the Flickr days, who was a back-end programmer, a M- iOS, or mobile engineer, uh, our head of QA, and one designer.
0: So you decide, hey, let's see if we can take this this side thing that we've built and see if we can turn that into our business. Um, were they passionate about this? Because everybody went into this thing to make a game, a video game. <laughs> were they like, yeah, woohoo, let's make an instant communication tool?
2: I think we were um you, you go through a trauma with a group of people and you you really get bound to them you know like it's really it's a it makes you very close and so I think we all wanted to continue working together in fact, we wanted to work with many more of the people that we you know didn't have the opportunity to to keep mm. you know the happy story is we ended up hiring back quite a few of the people who worked on the game, um including that one software engineer I mentioned who I had just convinced to move mm. like he, you know he's been an early slack employee for a long time um they might sound completely different. You know, one's enterprise software that has all sure. these Fortune 100 customers, and the other one's a online game. But to me, they're fundamentally similar for two reasons. One is I just like making software, and I like doing it with these other people. They all like making software as well. And then on the other hand, whereas there was two massively multiplayer games and there was a massively multiplayer photo sharing, Slack is multi- massively multiplayer communications at work.
0: So, So what did you tell your investors? Did you just like say – hey, you know, we're just going to shift. We're no longer going to do games. We're going to focus on this communication tool. Is is that what you said?
2: Yeah, that's pretty much it. And, um, you know, none of them wanted their money back. Hmm. And not for altruistic reasons, but we had already spent two-thirds of it. So their options were, like, we can get back a third of what we gave you, or they can buy one more lottery ticket and say, keep the money. Um, We'll keep our ownership Hmm. in the company and see what you can do. And that turned out to be, you know, A the wise the, move yeah the best decision any of them had ever made in investing
0: all right so you so at this point at the end of 2012 was slack would you did you guys call it slack this this internal communication thing
2: yeah, I was really wedded to the name and it was not really popular um, internally. Uh, so Where does it, it come from? There was a bunch of criteria we had. So we wanted it to be a regular English word. We wanted people to be able to spell it if we said it. Uh, we had to be able to get the trademark and we had to be able to get the domain um, There's the negative connotations that, you know, the slacker, slacking off. But there's also these positive connotations to pick up the slack or to cut me some slack. Yeah, right. Um, And I think that the negative connotations, I felt like because they would be, this would be an unexpected and unusual name, it would be more likely to stick with people. Having said that, we spent like the next four months arguing about different names, like dozens of different names. And all of them in the end either ran into like we couldn't get the trademark or we couldn't get the domain name. And Slack, speaking of .com um, registrations, was registered by this guy in 1993. He lives um, somewhere in the Midwest, I think Wisconsin, who is an electrical engineer, and there's no more iconic internet thing than this. He had it as a website with pictures of his cats. So it's just like the the domain was just sitting there, Slack.com, and you can go in the internet archive and look at his old website with
0: pictures of his cats. And he sold you the domain name?
2: He sold us the domain name, yeah.
0: So when you um, when you pivot from glitch to Slack at the end of twenty twelve, early twenty thirteen, was it fully formed? Was it was it essentially ready to go?
2: No, we there's two things. So one was the internal communication system that we had built. That was just really jury-rigged. But what was as a blueprint for what we wanted to build, it was more or less perfect. So we had that, we started development completely from scratch. In, uh, like, December 2012, January 2013, a couple months later, we had enough done that we could start using it. A couple months after that, we had enough done that we could invite some friends to try it. And then suddenly we realized, like, oh, oh, here's a challenge – We had been working like this for years, and it just felt perfectly natural for us. And the advantages of it were just obvious. In fact, so obvious that it was hard to articulate. And we tried to convince our our friends at other um, companies to use it. And they were like, why would we do that? Right. It's another thing to check. Exactly. And the really hard part of it was, unlike most software, now you can't unilaterally decide to use Slack with your colleagues. Everyone has to buy in. Everybody, yeah. Yeah. I can't send you a message unless you're also using it. So it has this real challenge at the beginning, especially when no one's heard of it. No one knows anyone else who uses anything like this. It's brand new software from this flaky company that just failed to make it a massively multiplayer game. So who knows how long they're going to be doing this? Why am I going to trust them? And what we imagine would be a really easy sell. Like we would go and say, hey, you should try this. It's great. It worked amazing for us. It um, was just received with cold stares. Yeah. We'd go back to the same company like five, six, seven times, and we would show them demos, and we'd try to explain. Um, it was great practice though. You know, we got much better at kind of refining the pitch and explaining what the value of everything was. Okay, you um, say
0: this to me in 2013. I'm your friend. I'm going to say, Stuart, I've got emails coming in, phone calls and texts and like Facebook. I don't I don't need this other thing. This is just going to be another time suck. And then you say.
2: And then I would say oh, this will be like a huge boon because you'll start to consolidate all the communication that's happening in all these other channels um, and critically, you'll build this archive and the archive increases in value over time. So the, the longer you use it, the more you get out of it because you can find the answers to questions that people had had before. It's this resource that's shared across everyone. You have to spend a lot less energy. And then, of course, you would object again and I would I'd say comfort, I want More stuff you know. <laughs> to read, Stuart, more stuff to read. Yeah, so we would go back and forth with this for a while. There's like always a, a million <laughs> objections. So it took us a long, like to get the first three or for external teams using it took us forever and then finally we convinced um, a company called Ardio to try it and they were, they were much bigger than us they were like 120 people um, and you
0: guys were at this point how many
2: we were still the same eight people
0: so you guys were just working like dogs on this thing
2: yeah Um, But the the, the more we worked, the more we realized, like, hey, this is actually – this totally makes sense. Like, you know, we – probably from the practice of trying to convince people, we had definitely convinced ourselves. Like, we were sure that this was going to be something that was big. What's funny is we went back to our um, investors, so including Andreessen Horowitz, which is now, like, a really big, successful venture capital firm. And this group had a lot of experience in enterprise software, which suddenly we were an enterprise software company instead of a game company. And we went in there and told them our plan and, you know – Um, our grand ambition, which was, hey, we believe that there's, you know, we could one day get to a $100 million in revenue with this business and thereby be a billion-dollar business. And, like, they were just like, you guys have no idea what you're doing. You don't understand what it is to sell into companies. You're going to need all of this expertise. You're up against X, Y, Z, different, you know, different companies, different technologies. And they were were like, good luck with your stupid little thing.
0: But did you think those investors were wrong? I mean, it's it sounds like they made some good points, right?
2: Well, so by the time we officially launched, it was evident that this was going to be something. Hmm. The leaky bucket problem that I talked about in the context of the game was completely eliminated. Like, We found that once people started using it, as hard as it was to get people to start, once they started, they almost never stop and um, – you know, At that point, people weren't paying us. They were just using it for free. Yeah. But we could see that they were getting utility. They were, they were logging out at the end of the day, and first thing in the morning, they were right back in there.
0: So you launch in, in February of 2014 officially. It goes out into the App Store or whatever and out into the world?
2: Yep, um, and we also told all the people who had been using it for free, like, hey, the grace, you know, this this is now you're going to have to start paying. We'll give you a nice healthy credit to thank you for being one of our early testers. Yeah, and we found the conversion was excellent. You know, like within. Um, Maybe two weeks or three weeks of of launching that officially, we had sold a million bucks worth of slack.
0: A million? Dollars. How does it, how do people how does it work? By the way, what does it cost?
2: It costs um, eighty dollars per person per year. So you would pay, you would only pay for the people who are actually using it. So if you have a fifty person company and there's twenty people using it, then you just pay for twenty people. But
0: in the beginning, it was like six seven bucks per user per month, something like that. Exactly. So you launch it, and within weeks, you have a million dollars in revenue.
2: Yeah, to be fair, it took us many, many more weeks to get the second million because that was all the pent-up <laughs> right. demand. Right. But yeah, we were off to the races. Unlike almost any enterprise software ever, people would talk about it. Like they would be in line at the coffee shop and they would say, "Oh my God, you got to start using Slack. It's amazing. It's changed my life." And they would they would post to Twitter and say, "Like, I oh you know, I recommend." It. And that you know, no one ever says that about the software that they have to use at work. No. So it was a completely different experience. Um, this was like as as the good of a result as you could possibly hope for. It's it's amazing.
0: By October of 2014, so this is just two years after you shut down Glitch and like have to break the news to all these people. You raise 120 million bucks. It's it has a 1.2 billion dollar valuation. I mean that's. That's nuts. That's totally insane.
2: Yeah, it was completely insane and you know, at that same period we're still growing like somewhere between 5 and 10% a week.
0: How are you dealing with that growth? How are you hiring enough people? I mean, how are you getting how are you getting through the day?
2: It was, a, it was a pretty mad scramble, you know. And that year, um, we went from maybe 10 or 11. I can't remember. we hired a couple of people at most 12 employees up to about 40, 50. We might have ended that year at 80 people and it was breakneck. like We had to move offices and um, we don't have yeah. enough desks. people are sharing desks. Um, gradually we put some systems into place. You know we started hiring professionals to manage different parts of the business right. and now it's you know it's there's a thousand people. It's amazing. Yeah. So this
0: has been called the fastest growing business app. Ever it went from from launch in February 2014 to the latest valuation is like 5.1 billion dollars. That was in September of 2017. It might probably is higher now. Th- th- those numbers are just staggering. I mean, for something that was just a side project that was never intended to be the business.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it feels like all of the years of like sweat and toil and sacrifice, all of the years pressing on with a game, you know, like kind of failure after failure have been, you know, more than rewarded, like rewarded dozens of times over, um because we thought like all of the other 8 person software development teams in the world would use this and um that happened like not that long after we launched. And now there's like three-star Michelin restaurants using it and there's like the Norwegian Department of um Labor and Welfare Administration, there's like uh, the Hartford, Connecticut Police Department, there's like um, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, there's all these enormous companies, um, there's all these small companies. We never thought it would become this big. Like Even in our grandest ambitions, it was like a tenth of what it is today.
0: Do you think there was a possibility that you would not have discovered Slack that that this thing hiding right under your nose you just wouldn't have thought this should be our business? Was there a possibility that could have happened?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, or that uh, you know, I, I mentioned the difficulty in telling the team and, and kind of what that felt like. It was hard not to let that just like crush me because it is so embarrassing, like it's so humiliating, um, and it's such a. Um, it was such a hard decision to make. I think partly because what you hear is the never give up in your dreams. You know, resilience, yeah. grit. You got to keep going. Sure. Right. It's, it's all yeah. about the fight. It's the slog, and I think that's generally true. And I think you, you, it's really important to persevere through things that are that are difficult. But there's also a point beyond which you're just making a mistake.
0: What, what keeps you up at night now? Anything? I mean, are there potential um, competitors? Um, or are, are you like, I'm set now. I mean, you are. You've got, there are many reasons for you to, to kind of chill out and relax, right? No,
2: I, I lose all kinds of sleep. And this is where it gets really interesting. And this is like, to me, the most fascinating part of the journey. So through a combination of inexperience and probably arrogance, when we we're smaller, I thought, like, my job is to be smarter than everyone. And to make all of the important decisions. And if I make all the right decisions um, and I'm smart enough, then we'll we'll be successful. Because that's the story that we tell after the fact around a lot of companies. Mm. Um, that it was like a series of strategic decisions that, that made all the difference. But what I found is what matters is performance at the level of the organization because to the degree that everyone's pushing in the same direction you're able to achieve something if people are pushing in opposite directions then you know you can put as much energy as you want in and and nothing happens yeah so you know when we were eight people it's trivially easy for everyone to understand what's going on you get to a hundred people and that's Suddenly, it's hard. Mm. In 2016, we went from 80 people to 320. So we doubled twice. And that meant, you know, we have an all-hands. I say, hey, put up your hands. Have you been here for less than a year? And like 75% of the company puts up their hands. Like it's really difficult when the average tenure is so low. Um, and, and not only that, but like there's two people – or whatever on the Android engineering team, and then they're you know they're working their butts off developing the app, but they're also trying to hire the third person. And the third person starts, and they have all these questions, and they don't know what they're doing. And then meanwhile, you're trying to hire the fourth person, and it, the, in that that chaos, um, it can be really difficult to kind of to hold it together, and. A lot of this has just kind of dawned on me over the last year. And I think I was probably – I feel like as a CEO, 18 months behind where I, I should be. And those challenges are starting to become clearer and clearer.
0: Uh, let me ask you about uh, – one final question about your personal life. So you you mentioned that um, when your marriage broke up, it was sort of – it had been building. You had financial stress and you know, you were worried about this and that. You are now – a billionaire, I mean, at least on paper, does that eliminate stress in your life? Does that mean that everything's
2: set, everything's taken care of? Um, uh, you know, one nominal correction. We've been around for a long time as a company, and I have four co-founders, so not even—I'm not even a billionaire on paper.
0: Okay, I sure. I got uh, a on uh, paper. You know, okay, sorry. Perhaps, uh, <laughs> but on paper, you have got lots of money. Yeah,
2: it, it certainly makes my life easier, and you know. There's all that research and I don't remember where we're at with the latest version of this, but like beyond a certain amount of money, it doesn't make your life any better. I really feel like there's kind of there's three levels of wealth in the world. The first level is I'm not stressed out about debt. Like right. people who no longer worry about their credit card bills or their student loans, that's like level one of yeah. wealth. Level two is I don't care what stuff costs in restaurants, you know you're like, oh, I really want this thing, but it's eighteen dollars, but the other thing is twelve dollars, so I'll get the twelve dollar one there's There's a level where like suddenly it doesn't really matter which how much you spend on a particular meal, and then the ultimate level of wealth is i don't care what vacation costs like I don't care how expensive the hotel is or or which flight we go on beyond that, I really don't think it makes any difference so um I feel incredibly fortunate, and it's great to have all these resources. But I'm just going to give um, almost all of it away because I there's no I don't get any additional happiness in spending it, and um, yeah, and there's a lot of uh, suffering in the world, and uh, there's a lot of inequality, and I think that's a place where not, not just me, but I, the whole company can make a difference.
0: Both of your companies, you know, your well-known companies, were the product of pivots, like you. We're working on something completely different. Both happen to be games, and then when you realized it wasn't going to work, you shifted first to Flickr and then to Slack. How, how do you think you were able to see that? Because it's easy to look back on it with hindsight and say, "Oh my gosh, Stuart Butterfield, what a genius! What foresight he had!" Is <laughs> that? Uh, do, you, do you think that's a, a fair assessment?
2: Well, um, I'm trying to remember where I read this, but there's a, there's a nice visual, and that's there's a billion blades of grass on this massive field um, and people are playing golf and every blade of grass says like, I believe the golf ball is gonna fall on me. And someone hits a golf ball and sure enough, it falls on some blades of grass and they say, see, it was <laughs> me all along. And, like the ball was gonna fall somewhere. This is the kind of like the, um, I was on the cover of Forbes magazine when Slack was really successful. If I didn't do this, if Slack wasn't successful, if it wasn't me, it's not like Forbes was just like, okay, well, we won't publish a March No issue. cover this like, month. <laughs> yeah. Someone was always going to be on the cover. Someone was always going to be successful. Uh-huh. And I try to remain very conscious of that fact. Like there's, um, we did work hard and we're clever and, you know, uh, we we're able to call on a lot of experience. And I think we let, did a lot of things right. But. There's a real increasing returns dynamics. Like once you start to have some success, the rest of the success becomes easier and easier. And you look at Slack is like the ultimate example of this. We were growing really, really quickly, even before we launched. And because of that, the press would write about us. And because the press wrote about us, investors were interested. And because investors were interested and wanted to invest, we were able to raise all this money. And that got us more headlines. And that got us more interest from great applicants who wanted to come work at the company. And the opposite is absolutely true as well. You know, one stumble and you lose a couple of good employees and now investors are kind of skeptical. You have to scale back your ambitions. Now you're not doing anything interesting. No one writes about you. No one wants to come work at your company. Investors are really not interested and you, you go to business. So, um, you know, while I, I am proud of all that we have accomplished and you know, there's been an enormous amount of hard work by a lot of people, there is this real um, tailwind that we have that really just, it makes it, all of that stuff a lot easier.
0: Stuart Butterfield, co-founder and CEO of Slack. By the way, in the early days when Stuart was interviewing job candidates for the company, he would always ask three questions. The first one, what's three times 17? The second one, name three countries in Africa. And the third question, in which century was the French Revolution? Now, it wasn't like you were disqualified if you got the answers wrong, but it was just a way to start a conversation. Stuart wanted to make sure that people working for Slack were curious. And please do stick around, because in just a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you're building. Our friends at Coriant provide wealth management services centered around you. And you know what? Coriant's goal is to exceed your expectations and simplify your life. Coriant can help high achievers just like you preserve your wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities you care about. Coriant has extensive knowledge across the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management. They're one of the largest integrated fee-only U.S.-registered investment advisors, and they have deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations, teams that put the collective power of their expertise into building you the custom wealth, investment, and family office solutions that can help you Reach your holistic financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, speak with an advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. On the rare day when I'm not doing an interview, I definitely spend my time taking a long walk. It's nice to have a little downtime, but not all of our listeners are so lucky. If you're a business owner or a hiring manager, you likely work around the clock. How can you get help, at least help finding people with the right skills for your open roles? ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com built. ZipRecruiter's technology finds and sends highly qualified candidates for your position right to your inbox. And if you see a candidate you really like, it's easy to send them a personal invitation. So take a break from hiring and let ZipRecruiter help. 4 out of 5 employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See for yourself. Go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash built. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-U-I-L-T. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today's story starts in Charlotte, North Carolina, where about three years ago... Abby Kircher was a teenager with a food obsession.
3: I've always loved peanut butter flavored anything. Peanut butter um, cups, peanut butter ice cream. I loved peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, heavy on the peanut butter. But one day, Abby did something that you
0: probably shouldn't do with a food you eat every day. She looked at the label.
3: And I was just like, oh my gosh, this is so much sugar, tons of additives and preservatives. And so it just doesn't feel like it's almost peanut butter anymore, you know? It
0: just feels kind of like a sugar spread. So Abby decided to go cold turkey on peanut butter. But of course, she missed eating it.
3: So I was like, I might as well make my own. You know, there's no reason why I couldn't make my own. So that's when I just whipped out a food processor and just tried it out.
0: This was, by the way, her mom's food processor, into which she put some nuts and coconut oil and salt. And eventually, it took
3: forever, it turned into a creamy texture. I was like, wow, this is so cool. I got very excited. Um, then I was like, OK. How do I want to flavor this or sweeten it? So I threw in some dates, processed that a little bit, and it was
0: so good. So good, in fact, that Abby started spreading the nut butter on everything. Apples, sandwiches, pancakes, even salad. And she began sharing it with her family and friends. And then one night
3: I went into my room and it was quite literally an aha moment. And I just ran back into the kitchen and said, Mom,
0: I could start a business. And she just kind of was like, oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it's a good thing Abby's mom and dad were on board. Because remember, Abby was like 15 at the time. So she needed her parents' help to track down jars and labels and a commercial kitchen to make the nut butter. But Abby was still making a lot of the big decisions. Like early on, she actually decided to forget about peanuts and to branch out into other types of nuts.
3: I wanted something a little different, and I, I realized there weren't a lot of pecan and cashew butters out there at the time.
0: So Abby came up with five recipes, each with just a handful of ingredients, flavors like date pecan or strawberry cashew and coffee almond. And she and her mom, Anna, set up a stand at a big farmer's market just outside Charlotte.
3: And we would just, you know, call people over. They were all incredibly intrigued by the story and how young I was. They would always look to my mom and be like, "So." you started this and she'd be like, nope.
0: Anyway, they kept selling out at the farmer's market and people kept asking for more. That was getting hard because they were still packing the jars of nut butter themselves. And how were they doing that?
3: Spoons, believe it or not. (laughs) Many spoons, many, many hands. That was the worst part, for sure. It just took so long.
0: So a few months later, they got a machine to do the jarring for them. And soon, they were pitching their nut butter at local grocery stores.
3: For a a young girl and and her mom to walk in there excited about a product, it, it made them excited. And I think that was a huge factor in our growth.
0: Less than two years after Abby started making nut butters, they were selling in like 300 grocery stores in the Charlotte area. And over time, it wasn't just Abby and her mom doing this. Her older brother joined the business, and her dad actually quit his job to join them as well. <laughs> Technically,
3: I'm the boss of my parents and brother, yes, which is definitely a learning experience, trying to figure out, OK, what are our positions in the business, regardless of our you know, positions in the family?
0: Abby's now been at this for three years. And her nut butters have spread to nearly 1,000 stores across the East Coast and Midwest, including some pretty big chains like Wegmans and Lowe's.
3: Now we're set to hit a million dollars in revenue by the end of uh, this year.
0: Which is pretty crazy because Abby Kircher is still just 18. Her business is called Abby's Better, as in B-E-T-T-E-R. And if you want to find out more about it or hear previous episodes of our show, head to our podcast page, howibuiltthis.npr.org. And, of course, if you want to tell us what you're building, go to build.npr.org. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe to it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This. Our show was produced this week by Casey Herman with music composed by Ramteen Arablui. Thanks also to Noor Kutsi, Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanfor, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is JC Howard. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. Your next great read is out there waiting for you, and NPR can help you find it. Visit npr.org slash bookswelove to browse
1: hundreds of books we loved published this year, plus thousands in our archive. And, you know, books make great gifts for everyone on your holiday shopping list. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect
1: for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl
2: podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself